Hi, welcome to Living Water Bible Fellowship's audio sermons. It's our prayer and hope that you'll be encouraged and uplifted by the preaching of God's Word. Stick around after the message to hear more about how to contact us. Good morning. Uh, The text from this morning's sermon comes from the letter to Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. To set the stage for our sermon this morning, a little of a, a bit of historical context, Titus, we know, was a Greek man, and he finds himself on the island of Crete which Crete was a deeply Greek island, both in its history and its culture. And in fact, according to Greek mythology, uh, the Olympian Zeus, the king of Olympus himself, was actually born on Crete. So it's a very Greek place. Their origin, their myth starts really right there on Crete, the birthplace of Zeus. So this is where Titus finds himself. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, And um, as the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, he is directly quoting from or alluding to many Greek thinkers. He's quoting from these sources. He's alluding to these sources that are already kind of immersed in the Greek culture. So there's a lot of Greekness in this letter to Titus. So in that same vein of Greekness, I want to tell you about Plato and his two horses. You might know that Plato was a very prominent philosopher, a very famous Greek philosopher, and this philosopher Plato, he was trying to figure out what, the, what a human being is. He's trying to figure out and rationalize and come up with an analogy of what a human person is. And he came up with this analogy, and it involves a chariot, a driver, and two horses. He's trying to get at what a human being is. And he says that the, the driver of this chariot, this is our reason and our intellect and our logic. It's our, our logos. And there's one horse and there's two horses, and the first horse is a pretty good horse. It's a good-looking horse, it's, it's eye-appealing, it's noble, it's proud, and it's obedient. But the second horse is not so eye-appealing. He's pretty gnarly-looking, he's pretty, pretty weather-beaten, he's not very eye-appealing, and he's pretty disobedient. And what Plato was getting at was our, our reason and our logic, uh, we need to use our reason and our logic to kind of rein in and know how to control This first horse, which represents our our positive passions, it represents our our, our moral self, good moral decisions, and our rational self. But this horse number two represents our irrational self and our immoral decisions, and it's up to our reason and our logic to know how to control each one of these, to rein them in, to have them under control, and to hopefully let the positive one kind of take the lead. So I want to take that analogy, that that analogy from that Greek philosopher Plato, and kind of apply it, change it up, and apply it to what Paul is talking about to Timothy, to Titus here. You see, Titus was a minister of the gospel. He was a fellow worker of Paul and all his missionary efforts. And Titus is essentially getting this letter, commissioning him to establish elders and plant churches. That's what Titus's commission was. So let's take Plato's analogy and apply it to Titus's mission. Titus is now the driver of this chariot. And instead of there being one bad horse and one good horse, 
there are two good horses leading him on in this missionary effort on Crete. One horse is sound doctrine, and the other horse is good works. Titus needs to be led by these two very, very strong horses, these two very strong animals, as it were, of, strong, of, of sound doctrine and of good works. Both of these horses are, are pulling him on to success. But this doesn't just apply to Titus in this letter. It could apply to any pastor of a local church, any elder board, and really any individual Christian. How do we find success in life? How do we walk this road of faith? Well, we do it by being pulled by sound doctrine and good works. These are the things leading the way. These are the things out in front. And we really, we need both of these things in our life. We need sound doctrine and we need good works. There are some of us who, you know, we have a lot of emphasis on sound doctrine, less on on, on good works, but we need a balance between these two things. We need to see the relationship between these two things and we need a balance. So sound doctrine and good works, these two things are the basis for Christian living, whether the individual whether the church, whether the missionary, whether the pastor, these two things are vital. So let's go ahead and read this passage together. I'm going to ask us to do something I don't normally do. Would you please stand in God's presence, and we're going to hear the Word of God read. Please stand in God's presence as we hear God's Word read to us. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So sound doctrine and good works. These two things are actually kind of a hobby horse for the Apostle Paul. If you were to read the rest of the pastoral epistles, Titus is what we call one of the pastoral epistles. If you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the Apostle Paul speaks about these things a lot, sound doctrine and good works. He talks about them in various ways, whether it's the teaching and godliness, but this is kind of a hobby horse in these pastoral epistles from the Apostle Paul. And as I said, some of us, we need better doctrine as individuals in this church. We need better doctrine. We need to immerse ourselves in the scriptures. Uh, We need to have a better biblical worldview and align our thinking with the Bible's thinking. And some of us in this room, we need to practice good works. We know what the good works are, but we just are hesitant or lethargic in uh, living out these good works. Some of us need better doctrine. Some of us need good works, but we need these together in our life, in balance, informing one another. Sound doctrine informs good works. Good works informs sound doctrine. Because this is the path to success in this Christian life. But this life in Christ, this uh, road to success, as it were, in this life of faith, it starts with doctrine. And we see that in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's a statement of doctrine. That's a statement of of something that we need to believe. And we see in this passage, this whole passage, that there's two appearances for the grace of God has appeared. And in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. This first appearance speaks to Christ's incarnation, his coming into the world. He's being born as a human being. 
living a righteous life, dying on the cross and raising again from the dead, and being lifted up and seated in the heavenly places. This grace of God came bringing salvation for all people, both Jew and Gentile. That was Christ's first coming. And this second coming, this blessed hope that we are awaiting, this is the second coming of Christ in glory. But the first time God came, the first time Christ came, he came with grace. Now grace is simply unmerited favor of somebody. The unearned blessing of a particular person. Nothing you did to earn it. Nothing you can do to earn it. You just are favored by somebody. This is what grace is. And in the New Testament, it is very closely aligned with salvation. Grace is very closely aligned with salvation. We are saved by grace. We know that as evangelical believers. And salvation is manifested in the work of Christ. What is the highest expression of God's love? What is the highest expression of God's mercy? And what is the highest expression of God's grace? It is Christ, as it says in verse 14, who gave himself up for us to redeem us. The highest expression of God's love, the, the, the pinnacle of his gracious activity towards human beings is sending his son to die in our stead, to redeem us from all lawlessness. This is God's grace to us, that Christ would save us, that he is our Redeemer. In fact, some churches, that's their name, Church of the Redeemer, because that's what he is. He's our Savior. He is the Redeemer. He redeemed us. And grace, we also see in this passage, is a dynamic force and ought to be an energizing factor in your life. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in verse 11, for the grace of God trains us. It is the grace of God that is training us to do and to live in certain ways. The grace of God, when you understand it, should be an energizing factor for your life. It ought to do something in your life. If you profess to understand the blessing of God and profess to understand His grace to you, that should cause you to live in a certain way. And uh, the Apostle Paul, as I said, personifies this. That is the, is the grace of God that is training us. So grace is not necessarily something that, that we take hold of, but it's really something that God does upon us and works within us. Grace trains us. It is God working within us. That is his grace upon us. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. You don't have to turn there, but, but listen to what the Apostle Paul says. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, God's grace works within us in such a way to make us alive with Christ. God's grace in it is effectual. Some theologians call it the effectual grace of God because it affects something. It does something in your life. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at. The grace of God trains us, is educating us, is disciplining us to live in a certain way. And we come to this word training, training us. This is the Greek word paideia, the Greek word paideia. This word is also found in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. You might be familiar with this passage. It's calling parents to, parents, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That word nurture is the word paideia. Also, the training and instruction of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord. Parents are called to train their children in the Lord. That's the same word we have here. And this word paideia is a very big word to the Greek mind in that culture that the Apostle Paul is writing. 
You see, in language, whether it's the English language or the Greek language, not all words carry the same weight. Some words are heavier. Uh, some words mean more than other words. For example, let's just take the English word shoelace. All right, I could tell you the history and the function of a shoelace in about five to ten seconds. It's a pretty light word, it's just a shoelace. But compare that word shoelace to the word democracy. Now that's a weighty word. That's a heavy word. The history of democracy, the Im implementation of democracy, the failures of democracy, the wins of democracy, there's, there's, there's more richness to the word democracy than there is to the word shoelace. And this word paideia is like democracy in our language. It's a huge word. It's a, a big concept. And Paul co-ops this word used in Greek culture and applies it to the church. Essentially, paideia meant an education in civilization. It, means, it meant civilizing a particular student in a culture. Douglas Wilson says that the word paideia goes far beyond the scope and sequence of what we would call formal education. In the ancient world, the paideia was an all-encompassing, was all-encompassing and involved nothing less than the enculturation of its future citizens. Essentially, when sometimes when we think of education, we think of just pro transfer of information. Here's what you need to know on the whiteboard, put it in your brain. But this was more about a worldview. This was a whole way of life, even a religious aspect to this idea of training and education. It was a huge, huge deal to the Greek mind. Paideia. You know, Christians in the New Testament, believers in the New Testament, and the New Testament are more, more often called disciples than anything else. You realize the word Christian is only used about three times in the New Testament. Believers are mainly called disciples. And what is a disciple? A disciple is a learner, someone who learns, someone who is an apprentice, as it were. That's what a disciple is. That's what we are as followers of Jesus. So according to Paul, this idea of training, we are in the school of grace. We're all in school right now. School of grace. Grace University. And Christ is the headmaster and the Holy Spirit is the vice principal of discipline as he is the one sanctifying us and applying this salvation to our lives. You see, when we sign up to be a Christian, when we believe in Christ, we get into school. We go to class. We are in the school of grace. We are being trained. We are being educated. We are being paideaed in the culture or civilization of Christ. We are all students of Jesus if we profess to follow him. We are all his disciples. And that's what Paul is getting at here. We are being trained. We are being educated in this life. So we're in school. We're in the school of grace. And in this school of life, in this school where we are following Christ, there's at least two lessons that the Apostle Paul directs our attention to this morning. The first one is a negative lesson, what to avoid. And the second one is a positive, what to pursue. We see it in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness and worldly passions. See, this is a life lived in ungodliness and a life lived in worldly passions is a life lived entirely within an earthly frame. With no reference to God, no reference to his word, no reference to his ethics, to his values, what he's done in the world, what he will do in the world. An ungodly, unrighteous life is a life lived entirely within this earthly frame and an earthly perspective. 
caught up in this system of the world. It is a life allowing your whims, the whims of your heart and your flesh, to just take the reins and live however you want. It's living in pleasure. It's living in self-indulgence. It's just living however you want to live, with no reference to God, no reference to what he commands, no reference to what he has done. That's a life of ungodliness and worldly passions. If we could bring Plato back into this analogy, it's letting that ugly horse take the reins and take control and lead you wherever you want. That's a life of ungodliness and worldly passions. And we're not called to live like that. We're called to renounce those things. But instead, we are called to live a self-controlled life, an upright life, and a godly life. You see, these, these phrases, especially self-control, the Apostle Paul uses several times throughout this letter. He's harping on this idea a lot, almost ad nauseum. He brings it up several times. And let me give you a survey of these instances of self-control, of these instances of living a righteous life. We see this in chapter 1, verse 8. He's saying that elders must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. We also see this value in verse 2 of chapter 2. Older men are called to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 5, the uh, younger women are called to uh, love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled. The younger men, in verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. What is it about self-control that the Apostle Paul is so up in arms about? Why does he feel like he needs to keep harping on this idea of self-control? Well, there's a certain reputation of the people of Crete in the wider culture. There's a certain reputation they had in the lifestyles they lived, but the Apostle Paul is addressing that lifestyle. We see this in verse 12 of chapter 1. Paul says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Here's where the Apostle Paul is quoting a Greek philosopher, a Cretan himself, someone from Crete, saying this is how the Cretans live. They don't live self-controlled lives. They're gluttons. They self-indulge in food. They lie. And they're evil beasts. That was their reputation as people living on this island of Crete. So the Apostle Paul is addressing the exact, same, the exact thing that would be a temptation for the believers. He's, he's telling Titus, you've got to tell the churches to be self-controlled because that's not how they're living right now. They did not grow up living a self-controlled life. So that's what he's getting at for this Greek people to live self-controlled. To live virtuously. When you think about a virtuous life, what does it mean to live virtuously? Well, it means to live self-controlled and upright and godly. You see, in the Greek world, it was a very complex place, just like the United States of America today, just like Western civilization today. And on Crete, we know that there was a certain reputation of non-virtuous living, but in the wider Greek world... There were pockets where virtuous living was taken very seriously. Where these Greek people, they pursued to live a life of virtue. Now sometimes when we think of unbelievers, sometimes when we think of people who don't believe in Christ, we just kind of have these, these bad ideas that they just live for self-indulgence all day, every day. You know, they just live and want to have as much sex as they want to have and just get drunk and high all the day long. But that's not necessarily the case. You know, we know good people who are not necessarily believers in Christ. And so did Paul. Paul knew that there were people in the Greek culture who pursued living a virtuous life, um, although it was outside of Christ. 
So this idea of virtue, it was hitting on something in the wider Greek world. Maybe not for the Cretans, but it was hitting on something in the wider Greek world. I mentioned the philosopher Plato. Another philosopher, a name you might be familiar with, is a man by the name of Aristotle. Um, he was perhaps one of the most foundational um, authors of all of Western civilization. He wrote a, a work, a book, called Ethics and Living a Virtuous Life. So essentially what the Apostle Paul is doing in alluding to these virtues and alluding to this way of life, he's saying that, yes, the Greeks, they pursue virtuous living, but that virtuous living is only going to be fulfilled in pursuing Christ through grace as he trains us to live in these certain ways. The idea of virtue in the ancient world, the idea of virtue in Paul's mind, was much more than just a moral component it really implied excellence in all of life, excellence in a relational life, excellence at home, excellence at work life, excellence in a social life. To be a virtuous person was to be excellent, was to be a cut above, not just morally, but in every aspect. And another apostle alludes to this idea of virtue. Peter brings this up in his letter, his second letter. If you want to turn with me to Second Peter to see what Peter says about virtue, we find this in chapter 1 of his second letter. Peter says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You see, we are equipped for life. We are ready to take on life. We have all things that pertain to life and godliness because God has called Him to Himself in his own glory and excellence. And if you have an older translation, a King James or an NASB, your word for excellence there is probably translated as virtue. See, God is an excellent being and God is a virtuous being. He has called him to himself and we are called to imitate that excellence. He says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with excellence. So Peter and Paul are really speaking the same language. We are called to pursue virtue in this Christian life. And as I said, what does virtue look like? It looks like living self-controlled, upright, and godly. Not necessarily a squeaky clean moralism where we never get our hands dirty, but he calls us to pursue excellence in all of life. Of course, there is a moral component, but it's really pursuing excellence in your work life, relational life, family life, and social life. So let's look at these virtues. Self-control. Self-control is listed among with the, the fruit of the Spirit, meaning that if you are a believer in Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, the Holy Spirit should be growing this in your life like fruit. There should be a growing sense of self-control and discipline in your life. To be self-controlled, that mean, means you are controlled by your heart, a sanctified, purified heart, but also you're controlled by your mind. Your control and the decisions you make are based off a sense of duty. Uh, your principles, what you believe. You see, to be self-controlled means you're not guided by your lust, by your appetite, by your belly. You are con in control of your faculties. It is cultivating the ability to say yes to certain things and to say no to certain things. You see, every day, every day we have the opportunity to pursue self-control. Every day presents us with many opportunities to pursue self-control or to give into the flesh. It's like a muscle. It takes repetition. 
It takes constant practice to grow this muscle of self-control. As I said, self-control is the ability to be able to say no to sin, but it's also the ability to be able to say no to certain weights in your life, certain things that hinder you, certain things that slow you down in your walk with Christ. You see, the apostle in the book of Hebrews says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. That means there's probably things in your life, brothers and sisters, that aren't necessarily sinful. They're not necessarily good for your walk with the Lord. There's certain things in your life, they're, they're not necessarily a bad thing, a sinful thing, but they can be turned into a bad thing based upon your self-control and intake of those things. They're called weights. They slow you down. They hinder you. Here's some things that, that might be a weight in your life. Food. Sugar. Sleep. Entertainment, social media, anger, constant need for distraction or background noise, the need to always give your opinion even when it's not asked, and the need to always have your tongue be unbridled in those tense and anxious circumstances. And sometimes those things aren't necessarily sins, but they're not necessarily good things that help you. The Apostle Paul says that all things are lawful for believers. But not everything is helpful. Not everything builds us up. So self-control is not only saying no to the bad things, the sinful things, but it's also saying no to those things that don't necessarily help you in your walk with the Lord. As I said, we are called disciples, and with that aspect carries the weight of self-discipline. Self-discipline. He also says we are called to live upright, to live righteously to live a moral life, to pursue the good, to put off our old habits and our old man, and to put on the new man, to put on sanctification. And we are called to be godly, to be like God, living by His standards in reference to Him, letting Him guide our life. So as I said, we are all right now in the school of grace. We are all at Grace University as we are being trained, as we are being educated in this life. But unlike this school... Unlike high school, I should say, this, this school is, is tough. This school is very hard, and um, we can't just coast through this school of grace like we did in high school necessarily. But just like high school students look forward to something, look forward to the end of the year, look forward to graduation, so we too, in the school of grace, as we follow Christ, we look forward to something. We are awaiting something. We are eagerly look forward, looking forward to something. And we see that in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our graduation day. That is the day that we long for. That is the day that we look forward to, the second coming of our Christ in glory. And when Jesus comes again, what will his appearance be like? Have you ever thought about that? What will he look like? What will he appear to be in our eyes? We have a clue about this found in the book of Revelation. If you want to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1, we can see a description of Christ that gives us some hint about what he will be like when we see him again. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. This is the Apostle John writing and speaking. And he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand 
stood one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were aflame like fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John, perhaps the closest disciple of Jesus, looks at this magnificent view of Christ. In verse 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Imagine looking at your best friend next time. Maybe your best friend doesn't live here in Alamosa, live here in the valley. Look at your best friend next time, and you are so overcome by the sight that you see that you fall down on your face. That's what happened to John. This glorified Christ, this magnificent Christ, this terrible and terrifying picture of Christ. Why is this our blessed hope? Why is this coming of Christ? Why should this give us resolve and comfort? Well, John gets to this answer actually up in verse 5. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Well, yes, this is a terrifying picture of Christ and an overwhelming picture of Christ. This is the Christ who loves us. This is the Christ who has freed us from our sin. And he has made us a kingdom and priest who is God and Father. This is our blessed hope because He is on our team. Jesus is on our side. A better way to put that might be that we are on His team as He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the Apostle John gets at something here that Paul also gets at back in his letter. It says, John puts it this way, that He has made us a kingdom and priests to His God and Father. A kingdom and priest to His God and Father. And back in Titus... Paul says it this way, the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave us for himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We are a kingdom of priests, according to John, and according to Paul, we are a people for his own possession. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that Jesus has a special place in his heart for the church? Christ has a special love for His people. Christ has a special love for you. Do you realize how special that you are in the mind of Christ? Because we who come to Christ in humble faith and call upon Him as Lord, we are purified. We are saved. We are redeemed. And we are a people for His own possession. We belong to Jesus. We belong to Him. Do we understand that? Do we comprehend that? Better yet, do you believe that? That you, hold a, that you hold a special place in the heart of Christ? Is that in your bones? Do you, do you wake up with that reality every day? This is our identity as believers, as the church. We are a people for His own possession. No matter what the circumstances are, we belong to Christ. And in fact, the Apostle Paul is alluding to the book of Exodus here. See, this exact phrase, people for his own possession, is used by Moses to describe the Israelites at Mount Sinai. 
what the Apostle Paul is saying, because salvation is for all people, as he said in verse 11, and we who believe in Christ, we get to benefit from that status. We get to benefit from that status of being a people for his own possession. We belong to him. Revelation, John tells us that God, Christ has freed us from our sins, that he loves us, and that he has made us a kingdom of priests. And Paul says here that he has redeemed us, he has purified us, and he has made us a people for his own possession. And because of that, the natural way of thinking, the natural result, as the apostle says, we should be zealous for good works. We are a people for his own possessions. Therefore, we ought to be a people zealous for good works, eager to do what is good, ready to get to work. Because God has blessed us, because he has saved us, we should be zealous for good works, to be zealous, to be eager, to be enthusiastic, to be salty, that Jesus might say, to be fervent. That's the type of people we ought to be. That's the type of way uh, the world should describe us when we think about our relationship to the world. We are a zealous people. Paul says in Romans, do not be slothful in zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do you get excited when you think about Christ? When you think about His person? What He has done? What he is doing. Do you get excited about the gospel when you talk to it about uh, talk to other people about it? Whether it's a coworker, a family member, is there zealousness there? Do you get excited about the things that God is doing in your life? Is there a passion in your life when you go to your small group, when you meet with other believers, when you talk to your children about the Lord? Is there a fervency there? Would your life be described as zealous for the Lord. If an objective bystander came by to just follow you around and watch what you do, would they describe you as zealous, fervent, eager to serve the Lord? Do you approach every day as a gift, as an opportunity to serve Christ, to work unto Him? You see, the thing about zealous people, the thing about excited people, Generally, they don't have to tell you that they're excited or that they're zealous because you can hear it in their voice. You can see it on their face whenever they talk about something they're passionate about. They're a walking billboard. They don't have, you don't have to ask them, are you really excited about that? They tell you it right up front. You can hear it in their voice. So are we a zealous people for Christ? Do we get excited? Do we get eager to serve the Lord? And I'm not saying that we have to have our zeal meter up 100% all the time, but there should be a zestiness to our life, a zeal, a fervency. If someone were to look at your life, would they describe you as being zealous for Christ and zealous for the Lord? We are called to be zealous for good works. What are these good works? Well, the Apostle Paul has them you know, interlaced all throughout this letter, and what I want to do as we begin to wrap things up, I want to just read for you large portions of this letter to get an idea of what these good works are. These good works are ethical ideals, something we need to strive for. They are attitudes. They are activities we need to do. But this will round out what we're talking about when we talk about good works, to be zealous for these works. So let's read these, this letter, large portions of this letter, to, to figure out what these good works are. Chapter 1, verse 5. 
The Apostle Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are called to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model for good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind them, remind the believers to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, but to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as, so as to help the cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. So that's, that's some homework for us in the School of Grace. That's some homework for us to meditate on these things. This is the good works that the Apostle Paul is talking about. And we should do these things zealously. We should do these things with fervency. And really, zeal is the best attitude when we think about all the things that God has done for us. He gave us His grace. He saved us. He freed us. And now He's training us. He's educating us. He hasn't left us to figure out life on our own, but He is training us to live in a certain way that magnifies and glorifies His name. So brothers and sisters, may we not be apathetic in our zeal. May we not be slothful in our zeal. May we grow in sound doctrine, and may that sound doctrine, what we believe about Christ, may those things inform our good works. As I said, every day presents opportunities for us to grow in sound doctrine, and what we believe, but also in good works. So let's let these horses lead the way, this horse of sound doctrine, this horse of good work, good works. Let's encourage each other in these things. Husbands and wives, encourage each other towards good works. As Paul says in Romans, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Would you please stand?
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that, that we are objects of your grace, that you have redeemed us from all lawlessness, and you purified us. We thank you for that, Lord. We go now into the next week with zeal. We go now into the next week seeking to do good to those around us, do good to our neighbors. We pray for, pray for your help in this, Lord, Holy Spirit. Open our eyes that we may, we may see where we are not self-controlled and not disciplined and not living upright or godly. We thank you for your grace, and we do look forward to our blessed hope, Lord. Until then, give us endurance, give us faith, give us patience. We look forward to that day. We love you. In the, in, the, in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. May you go this week in the power of the risen King. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. The gospel according to the Bible is that Jesus Christ, who was and is the eternal God, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, died for our sins on the cross, and rose from the dead three days later. He then ascended to the Father's right hand, where he sits making intercession for his people, and right now he is establishing the kingdom of God on earth. You can enter into a saving relationship with God by repenting of your sins and placing your full trust in Jesus' life, his death and resurrection on your behalf. In Christ, you will find forgiveness, acceptance, freedom, peace, hope, and a future. If you would like more information about Christianity or Living Water Bible Fellowship, visit our website at livingwateralamosa.org. God bless. <music>